This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt, one word at a time. And Taylor, I am so excited because we haven't, we haven't talked for a while, and I know that there must be an amusing new story from the farm. <laughs> there are always stories from the farm, some amusing, some not so much, but I do have one for today. Oh, excellent. Remember before how I told you that um, when the moms hatch out chicks that I'll take most of them to try because the ones that stay with the moms very rarely live past a few weeks. And so if I want them to survive, I have to keep them set aside. I remember that story well. And I think that particular story involved building a splint and things like that. So, yes. (laughs) So, um Sometime in that time frame, a chicken showed up in the hen house with three chicks, just randomly showed up. And what that normally means is uh, they've gone off and laid eggs somewhere hiding and hid a nest and hatched them out. And then they come back when their babies are hatched. But they're, they're not doing it in the actual nest boxes where almost everybody else is. So you've basically got a wild child chicken on your hands. And so I was like, oh, three, good for you. And they all match. <laughs> all, the chick- all the chicks match, which means they, they, she laid all those eggs, right? They weren't a bunch of hens coming in and sharing the same nest. So and who knows how many she started off with? She could have started off with 20 and and the others got stolen and eaten along the way. And she's got these three that she managed to get all the way to the end. But I mean, kudos to her managing to survive out wherever you were when there's predators all over the place and successfully hatch three chicks. Good job, mama. Right. So I didn't mess with them. I, I just let her have them. But I knew that, you know, it's just a matter of time. They're going to start disappearing. This is what happens. And within the first few days, she was down to two. And I was like, oh, well, the other two, knock on wood, are still alive. And I think they're like 12 weeks old now. They're old enough to fend for themselves. And they're fully feathered. And the the mom, like most of the moms that were hatching out eggs, I'd start finding abandoned chicks. Like when they're like four weeks old, I'd walk in to get eggs and there's just this little chick sitting there all by himself in the nest box She's done with him already. She's like, you're old enough, you know, but he's not not going to survive out here on his own at that age. So I would take him and put them with the others that I was raising, whatever. But these two, these ones, they just they kept they kept living. And by the time the mom finally was done with them, they had to have been eight, nine weeks old. And the thing about chicks is it takes a while for them to get used to roosting up on something. So um Chickens will try and roost in the highest place possible as as a safety precaution. They don't see well at night. They basically go into a coma. They're very vulnerable at night. And so that's why they have this urge to roost higher and higher. But it takes a while for younger chicks to catch on to that. And by the time these little guys were, I don't know, five, six weeks, they were already up on high roosts with the mom. So one day I come in and I don't see her anywhere 
which to me tells me she's gone back to roosting in trees or wherever she is she's been hiding. But the two little chicks are up on the high thing all by them, all the highest uh, roost all by themselves. And I was like, oh, cool. So I just kind of kept, you know, every time I went out there, it became a thing where I started looking for them. Are they still alive? Are they still alive? And I came in one night and there was only one of them there. And I was like, oh, my heart broke. So I was like, okay, fine. And I go about doing my business. And one of the things that I do is I check the trees at night because I don't want any of the younger ones getting in the habit of roosting high in the trees if I can get them to go into the houses. It's just easier for me. So every night I got to go knock chickens out of trees and go sending them to the <laughs> to the, to the, the hen house. And then as I'm shining, because I'm doing it at night, it's dark, I'm shining my flashlight up there, I see this little white you know, younger thing. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> there she is. Or there he is. So two of them are still alive. And so every night now it's this thing where I go and I look for them and um, I don't always find them in the same places. They're, the, they're getting higher and higher and higher up into the trees at night where sometimes I'm not sure I'm finding them at all. But as far as I know, these are the first chicks to have ever made it into self-sufficiency and, and just been raised by their mom without having to have any intervention. And I so hope that they make it to adulthood because, especially if one of them or both of them happen to be uh, female, because that is, that that's the ideal. You want chickens who are completely self-capable of, of surviving because they will then pass that knowledge on to their offspring. So I have fingers crossed, but that's my fun story of like, they have defied all odds. They proved me wrong. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> and, and I'm like so worried because every time I talk about, I'm like, great, I'm going to go out there tonight and find out one of them died or something. Like, I hate talking about stuff sometimes because it's like, I just tempted fate. But as of right now, they're both alive and I'm excited about it. Now, do you think that the reason that they they picked up on this so quickly to get up to higher and higher placers is because their mother did not withhold critical information from them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, you're so good at that. Which ties into <laughs> our topic for today, unintentionally, completely unintentionally. But the yeah, topic sure. the topic is what happens when you do withhold critical information from readers, and we will get to that right now. So this is a topic that uh, ties really well to what we were talking about in terms of cause and effect. And I, I'm actually quite excited to be able to discuss this because we've never discussed this before. Like in the five years of doing this show or however long it's been now, um, we have never come across this before. So I'm really excited about that. So what we're dealing with is this. Sometimes when authors are setting up a scene, they'll write it so that they'll imply that something has happened. Like as they're sort of to create a cliffhanger or um, to, to, to create tension. So the character has seen something, they've learned something that causes this chain of cascading events. But the author withholds that critical piece of information of what it was they saw or what have you. And I, I think it's done on the belief that by withholding that key detail, it's going to heighten the tension. Oh, my God, they saw something and it caused this happen. What was it? Right. And and that because we haven't been told what it is, that readers are going to keep reading so that they can figure it out and find out what's going on. This does work sometimes. 
uh, it's obviously a te- technique that many authors use to with with to great advantage, and they do well with it. But here's the thing that is critical: it only works if, in withholding that key piece of information we are not violating the law of cause and effect. So I'm going to talk about cause and effect again, just a little bit more. The law of cause and effect, it's telling us that characters only act or react, that's the effect, in direct response to something that's happened. That's the cause. Or, to put it more simply, there's always a reason for everything a character does and says. So even when a character is proactive, even when they're getting out in front of the plot, it's still the things they're doing, the things they're saying are still always in response to something, whether it's in the character's past or part of the story itself, something has triggered the character to do or say the thing. That's the effect, the doing or the saying the thing. Thing the character does, that's the effect, right? So we never end up in a situation ever, ever, ever. If you see this, something is wrong, where a character is, for example, sitting on a couch watching TV and suddenly they jump up and be being pacing and shouting for no reason whatsoever. Like something has caused them to do that. And if there is no truly apparent reason, no logical reason for it, then the something is psychological. Okay, there is a reason always. So to adhere to this law of cause and effect where the, the reason always has to come before the, the response. The cause always comes before effect. That is how everything makes sense. That's what gives us a framework in story. Because of this, then that. So, But even though that's the way it is, doesn't mean that's the way it's always written. And it's the writing part that messes everything up. Because we can't, the law, the law of cause and effect is, it's, it's like gravity, it is. But you can explain it wrong. So the, the process of writing a story is the act of trying to tell the reader what happened. And sometimes we get really creative and we think, okay, well, I'm going to tell them what happened and I'm going to leave it as a cliffhanger. And then later we're going to find out what that monster was or what, whatever it was. And that's fine as long as doing so doesn't violate, we still give a cause for a reaction, even if we might not know all the details in that cause. So the reason for this is if a character acts or reacts, and that's the effect part, right? If the character does something before we have a reason for it, the cause, then we have no context. We have no framework to understand what that character is doing. So you end up with, it could be events, motivations, actions, dialogue. It could be any of these things. If it's violating cause and effect where something's happening, but we haven't been given any information to tell us what's prompted that thing to happen, that thing, whether it's, you know, the action, the dialogue, the motivation, whatever, that thing is going to become detached from the story as a whole because it doesn't have any context. We don't understand We don't have a way to place it in the story. The character is doing these things. We don't know why. And so when that happens, 
those things exist in isolation. They're their own separate thing, and they're related to the whole, but not really until or slash if that connection finally gets drawn, and that's what allows it to slide into the framework. Now, I have to pause and say, people might be saying, but Taylor, that's how you wrote the entire Jack and Jill series. Like, yeah, it's kind of true in the sense that we had characters doing stuff and we didn't know what they were up to in the long term. Like the whole entire plot only finally comes together at the end. But any time a character did or said something in the moment, we knew what they were doing, why they were doing and saying it. And if we didn't know why, we knew it was in response to a larger thing that eventually would tie together. But we were never left going with, you know, Jack punched Jill out of the blue. It's like, he's angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because she did this. She did this. He punched her. You know, there's a cause and effect, action and reaction, right? So when, when an action or an effect sits outside this framework of understanding and we have no way to know what it means, we cannot emotionally connect to it. And the whole point of writing these scenes as we write them is to engage the reader, to create this emotional connection. So if the reader's no longer able to emotionally connect to the character or emotionally connect to the story or what's happening on the page, it means they're not participating in it anymore. They're not in the story themselves. They're, they're being pulled out and now they're just outside observers. They're detached. And they're watching these things that the characters do. They're watching from a distance, but it doesn't mean anything until we finally give them that key piece of critical information and then they can put it back in the framework. So where this comes into play in, in regard to withholding detail or information as a way to heighten suspense is that you can withhold details to do that, but you have to provide the cause that generates the effect. So um, recently in, in working over some of Steve's material, uh, I happened upon a real-life example of what this looks like. And Steve has been very generous in allowing me to use it. It is not perfect material. It's still raw and rough. But it really gives you an example of how this works. And sometimes, and I don't know, maybe it wasn't even intentional. I mean, I've been talking about how writers do this and they structure their scenes and whatever. But sometimes it's more like it's just a lapse of like they're, they're not really fully thinking it through. It's just a flow issue instead of a cause and effect issue. And flow, be, flow being an issue ish, as an issue is when something's inside that writer's, the writer's head, but it never actually manages to make it on the page and interrupts the flow, interrupts the logic flow. So in this scene, Reggie has, um, he's arrived at a location uh, early before opening hours. And the, uh, the, there's one car outside and he's looking for the guy who owns that car. He's not around. He calls out to him and nobody answers. And so he, the garage is open, the garage, sort of a workshop garage type thing is open. So Reggie walks through that and opens the door to the interior of the, the building. And here we go. It says, my next breath brought memories I'd fought hard to forget and triggered a rush of adrenaline into my system. Time slowed, and I stepped back to confirm that the immediate area was clear. Nothing behind me, empty office to my right, shelving to my left, sunlight streaming through the front windows. 
other than the banging on the front door, the store was completely silent. Oh, I forgot that part. There's a, there's a teenager banging on the front door when he opened the back door. Um, I ducked behind the counter to orient myself. Sports memorabilia store, Elan, Saturday morning. I was mistaken. I had to be mistaken. I worked my way to the side of the counter and looked out, mentally breaking the store into quadrants. The kid had his hands pressed to the glass, trying to see inside. No threat. Nothing moving al alongside the near wall. The center of the store was filled with racks, but nothing moved, and there were no feet between the bottom of the clothes and the floor. I inched forward and peered around the counter to the far wall. It contained enough reflecting glass that I could see behind the racks on that side. No threats that I could see. I kept my eyes moving while I inhaled long and slow. The two distinct scents were still there. The acrid smell of a gun having been fired and the metallic scent of blood. And can I just say, because you, you had asked the question um, before you started, you said, I didn't know if it was intentional or not. That was intentional. So, yes, it was okay. intentional. Okay. So I totally get where this is going. And I can see ways to kind of keep it the way it is intact without violating cause and effect. But right now, this scene violates cause and effect pretty badly. And that's because of the opening and closing sentences in the sequence. The opening sentence is, my next breath brought memories. I'd fought hard to forget and triggered a rush of adrenaline into my system. Now this, my next breath brought memories, is a disembodied detail. So we're told his breath brought on memories, but we have no context to put meaning to breath. He breathes, and then one second to the next, without any explanation, which would be the cause, he's flipped into some other personality, which is the effect. And because we, as readers, don't have that cause, we have no way to put meaning to it. We don't have a way to slot it into the framework of this story. But our, breeding brain, our reading brains, they don't take no for an answer. They don't accept no, no meaning as an acceptable form of meaning. So we start guessing. Like our brains are immediately trying to make sense of this. How does this fit? How does this fit? What's happening? And so we start trying to create our own context. Maybe Reggie, maybe Reggie regularly experiences PTSD flashbacks, and now we're seeing one for the first time. Or maybe he was triggered by the banging on the door. Or maybe he's having a psychotic break. We don't know. We know something has triggered him. But we are forced to guess. And because we're forced to guess, we have no way to connect it to the framework. We don't know what it means. We cannot emotionally connect to it. We cannot feel what is happening. We see it. We acknowledge it. But we don't feel it. We don't feel any fear. We don't feel any suspense. We don't feel Reggie's fear. Because we're just observers. We're just watching him do it. We're watching him do these things. We're not in his shoes. We don't, we don't know anything. So we're just waiting to find out how it all ties together. And so he does all the actions, and then it closes with this. The two distinct scents were still there. Still here, the acrid smell of a gun having been fired and a metallic scent of blood. I mean, that's a great way to end a scene if we already knew what we were even looking for. So the, these two distinct scents or smells are still here. That's what's giving us the context and the, the retrospect to go back and put it all together and connect the dots that, oh, okay, so it was the smell of burnt gunpowder and it was the blood that triggered him to do all these actions. And he was like 
trying to protect himself, or maybe he thought somebody was still in the store, or maybe he felt like he was back on a battlefield. Like, we don't really know exactly what was going through his head, but he had this response, and now we know that he had this response because he smelled something that reminded him of way back then. But these two distinct smells can't still be there if they weren't there to begin with. So we can't be told, oh, these smells are still here because we didn't know from the beginning that they were there. He just breathed. We don't know what the breathing meant. So that's a cause and effect issue. The familiar smell, smell of war is the cause that triggered Reggie's response. That's the effect. But we don't learn that until he's already gone through everything. So that means we'll understand it in retrospect, but we're not going to feel it in retrospect. We've already moved on. We, okay, we get it now. Let's move on. So what could have been a fantastic action and suspense sequence that really grabs the reader and yanks them into the story and they're just like, ah, 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 it's wasted. It's gone. It's over. So then comes the question, well, how would you still uh, like finish on that bang and of, you know, the metallic scent of blood and whatever without ruining it and still give Reggie the cause? And I'm not going to tell you there is a right way to do this. But ultimately, it needs to boil down that he smelled something. Uh, you know, I opened the door and was immediately hit by the smell of war. And it threw me back. Or I opened the door and the smell of war threw me back to a place of blah, 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 blah. Or I opened the door and whatever, right? But the point being, he can't just breathe. Because breathing is not a cause that justifies this effect. It's what he breathed that justifies the effect. And so the art is in finding a way to tell enough detail that you do not violate cause and effect and also don't spoil your ending. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it makes sense. And I, <clears throat> I had a sort of question and I don't is this a time to ask the question? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay. All right. So in my mind, I wanted him to like instantly flash back and not understand why. And so if if it's he immediately recognizes it's the scent of war, then he realizes why. So and right. I understand the whole cause and effect thing, but it eliminates the what the heck is going on here um, okay, mentality? So what I'm looking for now are my notes in the actual, um, the actual where I was like showing in the text. I'm not putting this here in the show, but in your actual document, I sort of roughed out how it might go down. And what I said was, I'm not saying this is perfect. God, it's so hard for me to put my own words out here like this because I feel like people are going to be like, well, there's a problem with this. You can't tell us how to do it. I'm just like, I make mistakes. Okay, guys, I was in a hurry. All right, here we go. Okay. A cold gust of air conditioning hit my face and with it, the smell of battle punched my frontal lobe and time fractured, yanking me into a place I fought hard to forget. My body responded on instinct, shoving me down behind the nearest counter before my conscious brain had time to react. Okay, that answers that question. <laughs> so I didn't know that that's where you were going with that. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't know that you wanted it to be where he doesn't actually understand what's going on. But 
And so knowing that now, I might come back and reword this a little to more emphasize that point. But the idea being that you can you can separate time. Like once you've said, you know, when you say that time fractured, that allows you room. Like it basically, when you say time fractured, time stopped or time paused, you're basically pausing the movie, pausing the action. And you're allowing inner dialogue to come in to put meaning to events. And so you have time and space to actually out, to lay out what's happening in a calm, detailed way. And when we write action sequences, we get the most impact from them by slowing down the action, right? And to slow down action, you have to slow down time, which can create kind of a cliche of time stop, time pause, time fractured, whatever. Cliche, but I don't really know another way to do that. Or, you know, my you know, my, I felt my body felt like I was in two places at the same time. There's different, there's ways to go about it. But the point being that you need time and space to spell it all out because the faster things are moving in real time, the slower it's got to move inside the character's head for the reader to be able to follow the action beat by beat by beat. So in response to your question, knowing now that you want it to be a case of him not fully understanding you've got to give us something. You can't just show it. You can't just show the effect. The cause still has to be there. And there's like as many ways to do it as there are writers. But that's where we go. With yeah, it. no, I actually think that that, that accomplished the, the whole thing. My, one of the one of the things that I wanted to accomplish with that scene, you know, this is thinking back, and I have no idea if I was thinking this at the time or not, but this is the first time we see Reggie in this kind of a position. You know, he's a yeah. fun-loving guy. He lives in paradise. Um, his his whole life is wrapped around the idea that life is good, and he's done a lot to get himself away from that other life that, that he was in. And Wait, this just hits notes. him in the face. I'm, and... I'm going to ask you for this recording back eventually <laughs> <laughs> because that was really good. And that needs to show up in here somewhere, not as direct narrative. But, yeah, I'm going to want that. But anyway, keep going. So, and I mean, that's that's basically it. He's he's done he's done all this work to get himself out of there. He has no desire to go back. He has no desire to be this uh, physical G.I. Joe type person that you know, the, the, the typical uh, hero in a detective series kind right. of thing. Right, and then all of a sudden here he's responding and, and there he's as if in, he was. Yeah, and, he, and then he's into it, and it, it just takes him a minute. He doesn't understand how this could be happening. It's like, you know, I've done all this work so that this doesn't happen. How can this be happening? Okay, that's... I want all of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank goodness we, have... we record. <laughs> I know, right? So... Um, I think that covers that that scene, right? And and how that works, and why cause and how it ties into cause and effect, and how withholding critical information can backfire, you know, instead of giving you the suspense that actually just disconnects the reader from the scene. So I have one more example, and it's a little bit different, but it's the it, it's the same sort of withholding information, and how maybe in this sense it's not so much that it. Um, pulls the reader out of the scene, but that when it, it, because there's no, the, the cause or the meaning is not given up front. It makes the, 
content feel as like filler. Like, so anyway, I'll read it. All right. So here's the, the paragraph where I, when I was going through the text, I was like, oh my God, this is another case of withholding information, whatever. And, and this is the paragraph that triggered that in me. This is Reggie. He's out on the beach, right? He's jogging. He says, uh, and he's already been running for a while. I swerved around Mr. and Mrs. Henderson, a fit looking older couple holding hands and enjoying a brisk morning walk. I waved to be polite, but didn't have the oxygen to speak. Then it hit me. There was a third option, one I hadn't considered. And that's where the scene cuts. So up until that, that final few sentences, the entire sequence, everything that came before that, to me, felt like filler. Reggie's out for a jog. He does some thinking. Um, there's nothing new. There's nothing that takes us further ahead plot-wise. It's just kind of rehashing stuff that has already been so recent that, like, sometimes when you are writing a story that has multiple threads running or when the character is trying to figure something out and has got multiple suspects, something where it's easy to forget one of the key things, you do have to have characters rehash it. But every time you rehash it, it has to add something new or it has to be in a different way than was approached before. And it has to have been enough space between the last time they rehashed it and this one. So it doesn't feel like you, the author, have had a lapse in memory and you forgot that you already said these things. So in this particular instance, everything that came before that paragraph felt to me like we've heard it all before. This is can all completely be deleted. And that, that, those, that was my recommendation. My editing suggestion is cut this and start the chapter later. Because there was nothing in, the, in that scene to indicate that any of that other stuff was important, which meant that when we hit Mr. and Mrs. Henderson, they just seem like ran, it just seemed like random information. There's nothing there that tells us, hey, this is important, pay attention. Because we're not told, it just said, then it hit me. There's a third option, one I hadn't considered. Okay, there's nothing there that connects that third option to Mr. and Mrs. Henderson or any of the other random details that Reggie has been thinking about up until this point. So my suggestion at that point was just cut the whole thing. And then I get all the way through the chapter, I'm almost to the end of it, and I read this. And it's Reggie having a conversation with his assistant slash business partner, Becca. And he says to her, hang on a minute. I ran into Mr. and Mrs. Henderson on the beach this morning. He's a big insurance guy. And when I saw him, it occurred to me that insurance companies often pay recovery fees for the return of stolen items. I asked him how that worked and he explained it to me. All right. All of a sudden, the Mr. and Mrs. Henderson connection has a point. Like, Everything that felt like I realized everything that felt like filler was actually a setup for this encounter to bump into Mr. and Mrs. Henderson. And that encounter is a big enough plot point that it could actually salvage the opening sequence and put sense. I mean, you'd have to rewrite some of it so that the filler didn't fit, it didn't feel so fillery and, and to give the scene a purpose beyond just bumping into Mr. and Mrs. Henderson. Otherwise, it's going to feel contrived. So we give the scene a purpose. We keep it now because we need to see Mr. and Mrs. Henderson or we need to introduce them at some point prior to this conversation. So that scene could be saved 
could be salvaged if we knew up front that this encounter had meaning. There is a critical piece of information that has been withheld for us for the sake of suspense. There was a third option, one I hadn't considered, and seen, right? Okay, we did not get any cause in there. We're gonna have the effect later on, but there's no cause because we can't connect Mr. and Mrs. Henderson to that consideration, to that third option. So going back to the whole topic of this show, which is that sometimes withholding critical, critical information, it can violate cause and effect, which absolutely goes backwards to what the actual intent. So the intent is to build suspense, to heighten interest, create questions, and keep the reader reading. And that only works if the key detail you're withholding isn't violating cause and effect. Now, again, as with the first sequence where we needed to know, we didn't need to know exactly that Reggie smelled gunpowder and blood, but we had to get to, to know that he smelled something, right? We don't need to have all the detail about Mr. and Mrs. Henderson up front for the scene to work, but we need to know something. Otherwise, we have this jarring gap of, of your brain just skips over this because it doesn't feel like a cause. It doesn't feel like a something. And then we get the effect and it's like, wait, what? There's too much time has passed and it's just coming at us random out of the blue. So I heard once before or read once before, and I know I'm butchering this quote and I don't remember who said it. And I've talked about it on this show before, but it's something to the effect of storytelling is really the skill of figuring out when to reveal information. And that's exactly what this is. You know, you try and, storytelling is a, there's a skill involved. And if you dump all the information up front, then there is no suspense. There is no, there are no questions. But you also have to be careful that you don't try and um, artificially heighten the suspense by withholding something only to find that that withholding is what would have tied the whole thing together and give it the curiosity and the suspense that it needed in the first place. Okay. And I, I, obviously that was intentional, what I, what I had done there. And I don't remember how far or how much later that, that information was, was added. And I do remember adding that scene after that whole section was written because I, I needed a way to add this other element. And that was, that was what I came up with to do it. Um, how, how would you, how would you allow that kind of a loop to become open without giving away the answer? How do how do you open the loop without closing it immediately? Okay, so I feel like I'm, I have to be careful in this answer because I haven't read far enough in the story to even, to, to know where this is going. And so I'm afraid of giving like advice specific to this situation and then turning out that it like completely doesn't apply. Because so much of the advice in writing and storytelling is contextual and situational based on what, what you're working with. You wouldn't tell somebody who's working with, you know, bronze casting to do a technique that works for clay molding, right? Well, so, based on what you've already said, you know enough to know what I was trying to accomplish with that. And 
and and so I I think in in that regard, there's not going to be anything that changes later in the story that's okay. going to make any me, advice that you give now inaccurate. Okay, let me go back to my notes and see what I might have put in there. That um, okay, so I did I did write notes in this, and and how I rewrote this, and, and it's not it my. It, it's kind of all mixed and mashed, and so I might stumble over my words because sometimes I have a hard time as I'm reading it separating what's what. But basically, it's like I swerved around Mr. and Mrs. Henderson. They were a fit-looking couple, long-term friends of the family, holding hands on a brief morning walk. I waved to be polite but didn't have the oxygen to speak. Then it hit me. There's a third option, one I hadn't even considered, and the Hendersons were right smack at its center. I slowed and waited for them to reach me. Yeah, that's way better. And, and all I'm doing there is giving the cause. I'm giving mm-hmm. the giving that piece of information that ties it together. The Hendersons matter, right? Hendersons matter. Pay attention here, and and the reading brain goes, okay, these guys are gonna come up again. So we didn't we didn't like give away the cow. <laughs> we just yeah. Here's a little sip of milk. And it's amazing. <laughs> we'll give you the rest of it later. It's amazing to me how we can have a conversation, you know, last week about the, the idea of cause and effect. And, and you go, yeah, 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 that makes sense. I understand the importance of that. But then when you have actual examples where it's missing, then it, it really adds color to the whole thing. So um, these, were, these were great cause and effect examples. I am very grateful to you, Steve, letting us use this information. I hope everybody listening is grateful to Steve because without actual examples, it's so hard to explain these details. And I can't use my own stuff as examples because by the time I get to it, it it's not, it's just not going to be a good example anymore. Yes, but I am thankful that we did at least once use one of your scenes as a bad example because it makes me feel better when you use my stuff (laughs) as as examples. So I appreciate that. So I think that is it for this week's show. Uh, We thank you guys uh, very much for listening, and we look forward to being back in your ear again next Tuesday. Yes, guys, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next week.